Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on January the 10th, 2013. For newcomers, help yourself to the big website, cuttingthroughthematrix.com. There's well over a thousand, I don't know how many audios up there, well over a thousand audios up there for free download. And if you go into the site too, you'll see that you can get transcripts for print up as well of many of the talks I've given in English of all the sites. And if you go into Alan Watt Sentinel, sentinel.eu, you can find transcripts in other languages. Remember, you are the audience that bring me to you, and I don't have advertisers on as, as guests. I have no sponsors to speak of, and, um, and there's no cash coming in from anywhere else. So it's just from the ones who buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughmetrics.com or the ones that donate. And donations are awfully, awfully welcome. So from the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can still use personal checks or international postal money orders. You can send cash or use PayPal. And across the world, you've got Western Union MoneyGram and PayPal. And what I do, as always, is to give you the history of the system that really emerged fully in the early 20th century for the first time to face the public, you might say, or give it a public appearance and to take over the world using the British Empire system to build upon and eventually to transfer a lot of the the, the onus onto the U.S., which it has done. They became the policemen of the world. But also it was to take over all of the resources of the world and bring in a new kind of world, a new kind of society. And really they also wanted to eliminate the middle classes because they knew in the West, even back then, eventually they would deindustrialize them. From this organization, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, they created the League of Nations. They created the United Nations. They worked with all the uh, the, the parallel foundations, the parallel government foundations, the real government fi- uh, parallel, I should say, because the ones that hold the foundations are really a separate government, which creates foreign policy, domestic policy, social policy, and everything else with their armies and armies of non-governmental organizations. So we are living through a script, and they use the Fabian technique. The Fabian party is also part of their, their group. They're on both the right and the left. And in other countries, they call it the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, they give you your prime ministers, your presidents. They're all vetted long before the public ever hear their names by this group. And as I say, the, the world they want to bring in is a planned society. We all serve them very, very well. Be very meek. Uh, psychology, psychiatry, uh, neuroscience will uh, make sure we're very obedient and complacent people. And also, in the future, of course, they'll actually breed a new type of servant class. At the moment, we're kind of surplus, we're post-industrial, we're post, going into post-consumerist. Now, they're under austerity, that's their plan. That's been in the books since the 1970s from the Club of Rome. And they have to force it down your throats. The big banks work in concert because the, with this whole UN agenda, because the big banks, of course, and from the big ones, the money lenders for the world, were the ones who got together to form the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which is a private organization. So we're run by private organizations, and people really, really don't get that at all. 
there's nothing comes out across the world in, in a standardized with laws across the world um, unless it's done through the United Nations. And they have been giving us our, our laws for a long, long, long time. So one group, as I say, that came into Britain and into London and became the money masters and who also came into the U.S., mainly New York, in the late 1800s or 1900s, are the ones who play left and right. They use a communistic technique to bring in a socialist-type government. And Carl Quigley, who was, was the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, actually said that this group, which is his group actually, uh, said that they're often mistaken for communists because the agendas are one and the same. The only difference is they also use the big banks uh, because it's all, they're all in it together, you understand. Uh, economic warfare is the best warfare of all. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix. And this system that I mentioned that was brought in by really foreigners, outsiders that moved in to London and the US, uh, created basically the Communist Party within the United States of America and in Britain as well. And uh, they also had big people at the very top of their parties, multi-millionaires still have today, of course, and they had the idea of taking over uh, the system, which they've done very, very well by owning all the media and creating what sounds like very official sounding terms like Royal Institute for International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations, things like that, which are all private companies. But they are the main advisors to governments. But they also now, as I say, they vet everyone going into politics. And Quigley himself, who was their official historian, Professor Quigley, he said that um, for a 100 years now uh, that... that uh, there's not a, a president or prime minister uh, that's been elected by the people that was not a member of this organization. That's to make sure that uh, they're always on the same path, same agenda. And that's when, when parties change, really nothing much does change because both parties go along with, with uh, the economic war. The economic war, remember, is essential for the bankers to rule over you. You must have massive debt. So they have perpetual wars and they also have create massive welfare states, intergenerational welfare states. That's how we destroy the, the, the prevailing culture in the country. Because it's a culture of war is war as well, you understand. Now, I really, I mean, I, I've never voted because I, I caught on very early as a youngster that it was all a con game, but just by reading history. And... Uh, those who get into authority are bootlickers. They could go a bit higher, but that's what they are. And uh, they're, they're kind of vetted themselves to get up the ladder inside politics, etc. But the public are still given the PR representation on television where they feel your pain. They, they scour the Internet. They don't have to get companies that do it all for them to see what you're all prattling about, what your problems are, and then they come out and, and talk about them. All they have to do is verbalize them, and you'll, you'll vote for that guy or this guy. It's quite a simple technique. They have no intentions, of course, of helping you because there's only one agenda here and they've all, they're all sworn uh, to allegiance to it, not to you. You understand? That's awfully important to understand. And there's an article here that shows you what they're really like. It's the same across the world now, but it says that there's sick and there's more sick and then there is the EU, the parliament. And it says how far the EU has become removed from ordinary people. Well, they were never ever near the ordinary people, the ones who get into it. 
but it says, uh, Tales from Inside the European Parliament at the Dusk of Compassion. It says, Having worked a few years in the European Parliament, I fear I'll never be myself again. The very way I look at things has been dented. I guess that's what happens when you fall through the looking glass into the wonderland of politics. Some things you get to see are merely absurd, like the cocktail party in solidarity with the earthquake victims of Haiti. So the EU Parliament had a, a cocktail party for solidarity reasons. They, can, they couldn't even get water in Haiti at the time. This is the French three-course lunch, a three-course lunch that was arranged to discuss the problem with growing obesity amongst the citizens. Or why not the drink offering that opened an exhibition about alcohol ignition locks in cars? Says other things are plain, damn surreal, and I'm firmly convinced that the list is topped by the champagne reception against homelessness. That's what they had. Says members of the European Parliament can put up exhibitions on the premises of Parliament if they like. Mostly this is used by corporations and special interest groups who want to show themselves and their work off in front of the elected. It says on the rare occasions these exhibitions are used for promoting one or other compassionate issue. In this case, to, to raise awareness of homelessness, but perhaps it would have been worthwhile to think it twice about just how this should have been done. To begin with, some 10 to 20 metal sculptures of homeless people, life-sized, were placed in one of Parliament's exhibition areas. Now, the taxpayer would fund that through the arts grants and so on. On the walls, a bunch of posters un- underscored the importance of the issue for homeless people. Then the exhibition was opened by a member of the European Parliament and a spokesperson for some charity. After respective presentations, a champagne reception with a prerequisite mingling followed. And it says, these images are going to haunt me for the rest of my life. Members of the Parliament in expensive suits and dresses, ridiculously expensive hairdos with a whiff of expensive eau de toilette, in their hands a firm grip around the champagne and a plate with cocktail canaps. This is mingling with the static bronze casts of not as rich citizens. Do know that this wasn't a fundraiser charity gala. Nothing of substance at all was given to or done for the homeless. The entire point of the exercise was to paint a picture of engagement and compassion from a very high altitude from their ivory tower. The scary thing is that the average member of the European Parliament doesn't perceive things like uh, this as uh, elitistic, one uh, oven, objectionable or even strange. This is what life is like in the political bubble. The closest a normal member of parliament ever gets to homeless people is when they whoosh past them in the parliamentary black chauffeur-driven Mercedes vans. It says there's a ruling ruling, uh, political class for you, a clique of morally unkempt people from the left to right, from north to south. This is the normal view for the very important people as seen from their ivory towers. Together with my employer... Uh, pirate member uh, European Parliament Christian Engstrom I was looking at this scene unbelievingly while we were making our way out of Parliament to have a, a beer or two on our own expense directly outside Parliament on the place, in the place Luxembourg we met a completely genuine Belgian homeless person for a moment we considered possibility of trying to get him into the Parliament and bring him uh, into the ongoing champagne reception but we realised quickly that such a stunt wouldn't be terribly well received and that's the reality of the world that's been brought in, folks. You know, that's, that's what you've got. Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, is often bashed for, for many good reasons for being bashed. But at the same time, he did give a truth. He says, sometimes it's better to have one king and his small family than to have to pay for thousands and thousands of work for government or the bureaucrats. 
we opted for the latter, so we've got the latter. And it's not very, very good at all. Because they, they can't, they go through acting lessons to even try to show compassion, because they don't know what compassion is. So they, they go through, they have, every parliamentarian gets acting lessons. To, to learn how to look solemn and grave, etc. I feel your pain. And it's just, uh, well, it's the worst it's ever been. For the ordinary folk, it was completely different. Here in Britain, it says, it says, World War II veteran is banned from visiting his wife for three years by the care home. It says, today, UK Column Live interviewed Gloucester Regiment veteran John Cole, supported by ex-Royal Marine Mick Harvey. Mr. Cole told us how, as an elderly pensioner, he's been banned from visiting his wife in a care home for over three years, having made complaints about the standard of care she was receiving. So he can't complain in Britain anymore. All he wants in the first instance is to spend Christmas with his wife of 54 years. For over three years, Mr. Cole's member of Parliament, Ben Bradshaw, who's full aware of the details of the case, has done nothing to help. What's the point in having politicians? They're not there for you. I hope people start to learn this. I really do, very fast, too. This is if you're as incensed by this as we are, please contact Bren Bradshaw and let him know how you feel. Please be firm but polite. High emotion, while understandable, does Mr. Coles no favours. Then they give you his contact details and so on to see if you can start to contact this home and this, uh, you know, care home and, uh, and ask and tell them that the policies are simply not humane at all and that, uh, Get a petition up or something because uh, this is the kind of stuff that just makes you sick. So we're into authoritarian societies now, and unfortunately, for a long, long time, uh, the public have been trained, literally trained, using neuroscience, psychology, behaviorism, and so on, to start viewing the government as the authority rather than the servant. And they've done an awful lot in the European countries over many, many years to make this so. Bernays said it too. He says the most important per- person in government is a person who gives them the reality. And he should know, because that was his job for the U.S. especially. Now, we're also going into the ludicrous era, because the people at the top who are having these champagne galas and all that, well, talking about homeless people, um, and, and haven't a clue how they live at all, and, and really don't care how they live as they give themselves pay raises every year, these big, big wigs. Uh, they come up with all these absurd things for the common folk to do, to how to live by being a commoner. And I thought it was a joke at first, but it's true. And it says, um, uh, from the Netherlands, January the 9th, it says, a local government official in the Netherlands and Holland is recommending people save money by resource or, and resources by peeing in the shower. Bert, I guess Bertrand Wazink, a council member of the Drenth municipality of Ian Huns said residents can reduce water consumption by combining shower time with toilet time. Dutchnews.nl reported Wednesday. Wesink made his comments as part of the council's 2013 sustainability initiative, which is saving water as one of its focal points. The official said peeing in the shower saves lots of clean water and is good for the environment. I think you should put this guy at the end of the drain when you put the plug out, you know. That's what you should really do with this character, folks, because he's really mocking all the people. He says, if you combine showers and peeing, you save a lot, lot of water and money, so why not? And this guy's getting paid for this rubbish. Can you believe that? Can, can you really believe that? But, well, this is the world. You can believe anything today because 
That's right on there. Now, society has plummeted because, as I said, when the big boys moved in to take over the U.S. especially, they formed many associations under different names, often under the guise of protecting people, uh, in order to take over, get more power and to alter the existing structure of society to bring in their own structure of society, which has been awfully effective. But they, they also wanted to destroy. If you want to do that, you destroy the dominant uh, culture that's there. You, so you attack it. Entertainment in Hollywood certainly has been attacking the dominant culture in America for a long, long time. Every guy who was standing up for his rights in a movie is a redneck, a redneck and a southerner and so on, stuff like that, you see. And uh, under this big communistic uh, system, I'm, I'm calling it communistic, it's the best thing you can describe it by, they really, really want you all disarmed. But uh, they've also taken the culture down until it's in the dregs of the drain, along with the P from that Dutch article I just read. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm back, we're cutting through the matrix And I've talked about how the culture destroyers then become the culture creators As they start to insert a new culture, debauch culture And then they, they staff it and then they dominate it, basically Very, very old technique and it's very specialised And the science is all there to do it And it's, the money is as well But um, when you go into the modern comedy, for instance the, the shows that they put out there are so disgusting the terminology is disgusting, and and people now are laughing at it. And I've told you before that uh, when you've had your moral uh, viewpoints altered 180 degrees, now you're laughing at yourselves, and 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 uh, as you basically uh, see yourselves in those particular situations, then you have been had. You've just been had. Someone else has got into your mind, changed your opinions of what's normal, what is normal, and what is just purely uh, disgusting or even pseudo-masochistic, and you'd have to be awfully, awfully careful about that. I've got quite a few links, actually, on some comedy stuff, which they call comedy, which isn't comedy at all. It's complete, you know, sewage uh, debauchery, to be honest with you. But that's what's getting put out to the people today. Remember what I read before uh, from Theodorno, when he said that eventually when they've won, the group, this group who took it over America, he says, we shall uh, destroy the culture down, to, down to, to, to necrophilia. He says, even necrophilia won't be far enough. And there was totally demolish all that was, all decency, etc., and bring in this new uh, dysfunctional culture, which, of course, is easily then controlled by those who caused it all in the first place. This is a warfare technique, long term. But if you look, too, at some other countries where they get off American uh, television, too, um, even like Taiwan, it says a macabre new gambling trend is starting to gather pace in Taiwan where bets are placed on the life expectancy of sick patients. Worth more than £20 million, pounds, it says, or $30 million, the death gambling market in the town of Taichung is allowing people to wager a bet on when the old, the cancer-ridden and the terminally ill will die. The craze is not just restricted to girlish gamblers. Bets have also been placed by doctors, nurses and other hospital staff, as well as families and guardians. According to local media, some 60 so-called senior citizens clubs are in place posing as charitable organizations for the elderly. 
and the gamblers who want to take part in betting on the unwitting human roulette wheels have to pay a membership fee of $2,000 or £43 to the bookies, according to the Mirror newspaper. The bookies then visit hospitals, do a round to survey possible bets, and then seek permission from the patient's family. Then they take the punters to the hospital on the next visit to observe their patients. According to the rules, the bookies win if the cancer patients die within a month. However, if they die within one and six months after the bets were placed, the gamblers would be paid three times their wager. The Times reported some families agreed to take part to pay for funeral costs, and police are said to be investigating the practice and the, and the legal implications. In some cases, families are thought to have been offered special bonuses by organisers if they instruct doctors to withhold life prolonging programmes. Well, of course, they're going to do all that. They pay the doctors for the who are going to tell them when they're going to die anyway. Their, their estimates. And this article here, too, is Facts versus Factions, the Use and Abuse of Subjectivity in Scientific Research, it's called. There seems to be no doubt about it. If you were going to have a heart attack, there was never a better time than the early 1990s. Your chances of survival appear to be better than ever. Leading medical journals were reporting results from new ways of treating heart attack victims whose impact on death rates wasn't just good, it was amazing. In the 1992 trials in Scotland of a clot-busting drug called anastreplis, suggested that it could be double the chances of survival. A year later, another miracle cure emerged. Injections of magnesium, which studies, studies suggested could also double survival rates. Leading cardiologists hailed the injections as an effective, safe, simple and inexpensive treatment that could save the lives of thousands. But then something odd began to happen. In 1995, The Lancet, that's one of the main medical journals in Britain, uh, publishing, published the results of a huge international study of heart attack survival rates amongst 58,000 patients, and the amazing life-saving abilities of magnesium injections had simply vanished. Anastreplase fared little better. The current view is that its real effectiveness is barely half that suggested by the original trial. In the long war against Britain's single biggest killer, a few disappointments are obviously inevitable. The first killer, of course, is government, I think. And over the last decade or so, scientists have identified other heart attack treatments, which in trials reduce mortality by up to 30%. But again, something odd seems to be happening. Once these drugs get out of clinical trials and onto the wards, they too seem to lose their amazing abilities. Last year, Dr. Nigel Brown and colleagues at Queen's Medical Centre at Nottingham published a comparison of death rates amongst heart attack patients from 1989 to 1992 and those back in the clinical dark ages of 1982 to 84. Before such miracles as thrombolytic therapy had shown success in trials, their aim was to answer a simple question, just what impact have these clinically proven treatments had on death rates out on the wards? Judging by the trial results, the wonder treatments would actually have led to death rates on the wards of just 10% or so. What Dr. Brown and his colleagues actually found was, to put it mildly disconcerting, out on the wards, the wonder drugs seemed to be having no effect at all. In 1982, the death rate amongst patients admitted with heart attacks was about 20%. Ten years later on, it was the same, 20%. Double the death rate predicted by the clinical trials. So, you see, marketing is a great tool to have, and money to back it up to in advertising, to convince the public of wonder drugs and the pretty well cons. Back with more after this.
are listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix, talking about the system. There's all one system across the world. Everything you read about actually is simply the fallout of the system, as it destroys cultures, lives, and everything else. It's meant to. That's its agenda. But the U.S. was started up supposedly to to help a, a people for the first time begin in a free society. And it didn't take long to be subverted by those who flooded in uh, with a particular mission, actually, to subvert the country, take it over financially, and start giving the people the culture. However, it wasn't to end there, because under this wonderful New World Order idea, we've all to be run by experts and live under authoritarian systems. And we're having trained, as I said earlier, to now obey uh, all governments, self-government obeying the people. And it took me a while to do that, but not too long, actually. And you do it all about techniques of persuasion. It's actually a science. It's a science of persuasion, if you don't, if you don't understand that. And it says here, Heritage Pig Farm embargoed USDA and DNR close in. And it says, our farm is basically embargoed in the U.S. We can raise all the pigs we want, but cannot move them out to our market. That cuts off cash flow, effectively starving the family financially and the pigs practically. Bankers Green Acres made the news last spring as the Michigan Department of Natural Resources went on a mission to eradicate heritage pigs, calling them a feral, invasive species. This move would wipe out the entire small-scale farm whose animals pose no threat to typical hog species. New blockages from multiple government agencies are making it impossible to run the farm. Mark and Joel Akers of Marion, Michigan, decided to fight the invasive species order but have not been allowed to have a hearing, and it's been a year. So after feeding, feeling, uh, feeding all the Russian boar and mangalitsa pigs, um, which has cost them 200 to $300 per day to keep them alive while in limbo, they decided to take them to the slaughter. Isn't that what the state wanted? Wouldn't that make them happy? But when they went to take some to the USDA slaughterhouse, they were blocked right before Christmas by an issue from the USDA who was supporting the DNR move. This takes me back to what Lenin said. This is all these things in America and the West would be called services to begin with. And then they'd all become authorities. And that's all happened, folks. That was always the intention. Until you can't make any decision on your own, you must get permission. Everything is a privilege, you understand, in this new system. And you must get permits and privileges, and you must bow and scrape when you're told to, uh, to the big orders that come down from above. Anyway, there's a video attached to this, and I'll put all this up tonight, all these articles up, up tonight at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. There's a video goes with it about how this uh, illustrates a dire decision that affects all of our food freedom. They say they're going after all the food. You cannot be independent today. There's much more. They're, they are going to bring in controlled rationing in the future. So you're under a war scenario. That's part of the con game of uh, the war against terrorism. They, they want people to be homeless, uh, moving one area to another, get moved here and there. They also want you to be dependent, like in any war, for your food. And the big corp- corporations that were set up, they pretty well own all the food supply now. They don't want small freeholders and people doing their own thing. You cannot have independence. And uh, you must only have the big corporate authorities, big corporate farms. They're owned by the five, the five agribusiness companies. 
It says, many of us don't hear what goes on with the victimized farmers after initial news hits. Makes one wonder if these court cases are dragged out on purpose. But Mark Rice has known his situation report with rousing patriot words about our food and farming rights. And he aptly compares these government actions to, as Jill said, the Soviet blockade of Berlin post-World War II. They attempted to gain control of the entire strategic city forcibly by controlling the food and fuel the people could have. And it's all here, folks. And it's actually run by the same peoples. A lot of them came over here, too, and they're in positions of power. Also, this one here is called, um, it's a little video, too. It says, The Vetting, Holder 1995. It says, We must brainwash people on guns. Uh, and it says that um, uh, Holder was addressing the Women's National Democratic Club. In 1995, in his remarks broadcast by C-SPAN 2, he explained that he intended to use the same anti-smoking campaign techniques as his model to change the hearts and minds of people in Washington, D.C. about guns. Now, for those who don't understand this, uh, there were two characters, I'll call them characters, I could go further, who worked at the United Nations, who were recruited by them, big marketers who were given the job to go against the anti-smoking campaign. And they also were the ones who were to drop the, the techniques of uh, psychology and neuroscience to be used on the general public through advertising and in the school system to stop what they called homophobia and other things like that. So it's the same guys who are behind Holder, Eric Holder, on this. They'll go to the children, they'll show them uh, terrible scenes of warfare and so on, etc., and slaughter. And there's a technique, of again, of persuasion, which is used in the way that they're taught. Actually, they're called toolkits to give them, these teachers, to teach this stuff to the children. And what he says is, what we want to do is change the way in people think about guns. See, that's the technique right there, how people think about guns, especially about young people, and make it something that's not cool, that it's not acceptable, it's not hip to carry a gun anymore, in the way in which we changed our attitudes about cigarettes. Holder added, almost said Hitler there, added that he had asked advertising agencies in the nation's capital to assist by making anti-gun ads rather than commercials. That makes me buy things that I don't really need. He also approached local newspapers and television stations, he said, asking them to devote prime space and time, respectively, to his anti-gun campaign. Local political leaders and celebrities, Holder said, including Mayor Marion Barry and Jesse Jackson, has, have been asked to help. In addition, he reported he'd asked the local school board to make the anti-gun message a part of every day, every school and every level. And that's the technique. They institutionalize the terminology they'll use and they do it daily repetition. Despite strict gun control efforts, Washington, D.C. and it was and remains one of the nation's most dangerous cities for gun violence, though crime has abated somewhat since the 1990s. Holder went on to become Deputy Attorney General in the Clinton administration, currently serves as Attorney General in the Obama administration. The video of Holder's remarks was uncovered by Breitbart, it says. So I'll put this up tonight if you want to hear him. And it says here, this article to gun, uh, Gifford, this is another one, Gifford's gun control group wants $20 million for 2014 elections. This is a new gun control group led by Gabriel Giffords, the former U.S. congresswoman wounded in a Tucson shooting. Rampage wants to raise $20 million for the 2014 congressional elections, matching the National Rifles Association's spending in last November's elections, the group's treasurer said on Wednesday. Giffords and her husband, former U.S. astronaut Mark Kelly, have turned to Houston, a trial lawyer, 
and Democratic donor Steve Moston to act as treasurer. He gave $1 million of his own money to help kickstart the campaign launch Tuesday, calling for what Giffords and Kelly described as common-sense measures to curb gun violence. The move marks the the entry of the high-profile couple, both gun owners, into a heated national debate over gun control fueled by the massacre of 20 children and six teachers at the Connecticut uh, Elementary School last month. We're just uh, getting things started, but I've had conversations with dozens of other large political donors who've worked with me on other issues in the past, and I've had a good response, most told Reuters. Even if the group manages to meet its funding targets and other similar groups face a steep battle to change U.S. gun laws, the U.S. House of Representatives has a pro-gun rights majority, and it's too early to know if the outcry of the Connecticut shooting will lead to a shift in how they vote. Vice President Joe Biden said Wednesday that White House is determined to act quickly to curb gun violence and explore all avenues, including executive orders that would not require approval by Congress. Once a favorite cause of wealthy liberals from Hollywood to Manhattan, gun control has fallen out of favor in recent years and Congress has not approved any major restrictions on gun ownership in nearly two decades. But the tide might be turning. Here we go again with one of the guys who came into the company. Billionaire New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg spent $3.3 million to help unseat a pro-gun Democratic U.S. representative from California, Joe Baca, even before the Connecticut massacre. Giffords' effort, Americans for Responsible Solutions, seeks to build on that momentum. We're going to provide a support and backing for candidates in U.S. Congress and U.S. Senate races that are attacked by the NRA for taking moderate positions on common-sense gun safety issues, most said. We also field candidates. So it's uh, they're, they're really going at it, you see, because that was the old, old agenda was to disarm Americans and any excuse will happen and they'll keep giving you reasons for it to happen if you buckle under. If you won't buckle under, of course, if you know what's, what's it really all, all about. Because once uh, America, as I say, is not Britain or any other European country. It's not. And it didn't start off the same way either and it never really was in, in, in their abeyance to a king or a queen. And even the government was supposed to be uh, a government that was nervous at times uh, unfortunately, through the massive brainwashing, especially since the days of Bernays, who was brought on board and worked with lots of the presidents, they've reversed the position to make the people think that they are all powerful like God and to get rid of the Constitution altogether. Now, in England, I'll also put up a, a link tonight, and this is a warning to America from England about what happens when you take the guns away from the citizens, and you'll see all these people demonstrating and marches because they're all afraid to live anymore with no protection in the violent society. Remember the EU has said that Britain is now the number one violent, most violent country in Europe. But the violence is coming mainly, unfortunately, from lots of of gang-type immigrants that come in with all the rest of the immigrants and they head for Britain because it's, why not? You see, Britain was a culture that wasn't on guard for this. So it's like wolves going into a, a field of sheep. And they just uh, rake off the public. We wouldn't believe the firearms come in with them. And they come in with the drugs too. And so it's a very violent, violent place. And the people are defenseless. And the people get charged if they defend themselves in Britain. That's what they want to bring into America. Also tonight too, the big push is on, of course, to alter their or perception. Remember what I said about Holden, what you said there, is how people think about guns. That's why they teach them in school now, not but through facts or logic or anything else. It's always 
what do you think? How do you feel about this? You see? And it's the same too with the so-called transsexual uh, augmentation or surgery that they'll go through as they try to confuse everybody and make you think that everything that's really abnormal is now normal. You see? That's, that's what it's about. It's to make you drive you crazy. Uh, but if you're going to destroy a culture, you could destroy every part of the culture, how you think and feel about everything. Understand? And I'm not kidding about this. This is a science. Well documented by those who brought it in. And it says, Faces of Change, amazing time-lapse video captures transsexuals' three-year transformation from man to a woman. And of course, they're lying their faces off. They know this because it's still not a woman. I don't care what plastic surgery can do and the skill of the surgeon. It's still not a woman. He doesn't have ovaries. He doesn't have a womb and all the rest of it. He's basically a homosexual now who's, who's looking like a woman, looking like a woman, but he's still homosexual. He wants a man, right? He started off as a man who liked men, and he's now a man dressed like a woman who wants a man. Same thing. So stop using their terminology. And uh, uh, as I say, he's not a woman, not a woman at all. I don't care what they do with surgery or anything else. Now, you see articles like this one here. And it's got partial truths in it, and it's about biofuels. Now, we know that uh, about 40% of crops now are going to biofuels. It's just a big racket, of course. And um, and uh, the big boys are raking the cash in off all of these crops, so much so that some people across the world uh, complained before all started that uh, certain nations would end up in starvation because so much of these crops would end up as fuel for these big mega corporations, and that's happening today. Even in Texas, uh, through the drought period there last year, uh, they complained to the, to the FDA to allow more, or the agricultural department to allow more uh, uh, crops or, or grain to be sold, corn to be grain, sold for animal feed, and they were refused. It was all going to be biofuel. So it says, how U.S. biofuel policies destroying Guatemala's food supply. Now, that's, that's not true. You understand, stop, stop this thing about saying Britain and America and so on. The corporations, I don't care where they're based, these are private corporations which are international, are destroying Guatemala's food supply. So a new report in the New York Times highlights how biofuel policy in the U.S. and Europe has produced a rolling food catastrophe in Guatemala. The country once enjoyed a nearly self-sufficient level of corn production. Oh, it's terrible, you can't have that. But domestic producers were undercut by American corn exports, subsidized by U.S. agricultural policy. Guatemala's domestic corn supplies dropped nearly 30% per capita between 1995 and 2005. In 2007, the U.S. established its expanded biofuel standards and began relying on corn to meet them. That drove up demand, and the flow of cheap corn into Guatemala dried up. Meanwhile, the larger farms and industrial producers took up much of Guatemala's available croplands and water supplies to produce sugarcane, vegetable oil, and other crops to meet increased global demand for biofuel due to European as well as U.S. policies. Now, understand all countries at one time had to be self-sufficient. And when you were actually nations, you're all nations, having one family, if you like, you always make sure that you grow enough for yourselves. Now it doesn't matter. They've all been encouraged to sell abroad to the highest bidder. So the whole entire food supply is up on this big stock exchange, this futurist market, with the same big boys that own everything else as they juggle it around like a juggler for the highest bidder. And to hell with you at home.
that all has to stop, folks. Anyway, it says that the result left for substance farmers with less and less land to work in the average Guatemalan, whose diet is heavily corn-based, with nowhere else to turn for affordable food. Now, apart from all that, remember too, there's another article here about how uh, Monsanto is having a boom time in Latin America because they've forced uh, all their modified seeds and not all the peoples there. Now, you've had it once you accept these seeds because you've got to go back to the master to get the seeds every year, you understand. You, if you want, you think about self-sufficiency. There is no self-sufficiency if you go off cap in hand to the master, the master of all food, every year to buy your seed. You, you've had it. You've been, you're now owned. It's the same across India and all these countries now. And that's the real reason for all these GE and GM foods. It's not for better crops because all the studies show you they don't get better crops. They're often less, in fact, to get. It's all to do with dominance and doing away with independence on the farm. That's what it's for. Dominance. It's, it's food warfare. Also, an article tonight I'll put up is from the Council on Foreign Relations, the big organization, as I say, that was set up by those that came in to America in the 1800s or 1900s and became the Council on Foreign Relations. Some of them did, but they, they worked with all the other groups. And they decided to take over the media and the culture and everything else too. And, um, and they're also working, uh, for, from Chatham House in London. And they worked in, in uh, the Harold Pratt building in New York as well for the American branch. They've always been there to make, to make sure that immigration reform would not happen. To try to keep some cultural balance in America. Great history to it. But now apparently they've got what they want. Open doors. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix and I'll take Werner from New Brunswick if you're still there on the line. Are you there, Werner? Yeah, good evening, uh, Al. Yes. I didn't think I would come on there tonight. Yes. But uh, listen, uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, the Baker family and uh, the uh, dispute there with the Natural Resources uh, Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all those issues, there's another other underlying major issue and that is conflict of interest. Yes. Those, uh, all those civil servants and the government uh, uh, departments and so, their pension funds, they are not invested in Baker's farm. They are invested in the big multinational corporations whose stocks are being traded at the stock exchange. Yes. The same way with the judges, the Supreme Court judges, the whole judiciary system. They all got a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And basically we are dealing with a situation where we got hired boards for hire yeah. to all the institutions that are supposed to protecting us, are supposed to uh, uh, basically create a uh, level playing field, but they are, have been all infiltrated by, uh, from judicial horse to a professional horse to scientific horse for hire. But uh, who has created a, a, one of the biggest pools of investment capital? It comes from the military. Yes. And what has the military become now? Military horse for hire. Whoever well, pays them. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. this is a, this is a big mess and unless people do some soul searching 
and they ask themselves the question, where is my, uh, my income uh, coming from? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the, 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 we see it as corruption at the bottom level. At, at the level they're in, these people here, they've all taken their, their business management courses and then gone into politics, and they see politics or governments as simply the honeypot for their own personal enterprises, and they take the cash from the honeypot, which the taxpayers pay into, for personal profit and benefit, and it's become standardized. Now, this is a standard pattern now. It is corrupt from our point of view. From their point of view, they think they're entitled to do what they want. In other words, as I said before, but Hamilton, he talked about having a king or a queen and supporting them, or support thousands and thousands of government agents. Well, we've taken the latter approach. And we've got all them to, to pay for now. And they're not content to serve you. They, they don't serve the public at all. It, the whole farce is a farce of serving the public. Yeah. That's become a, a parasitic system from one end to the other. Yes. The parasites, they determine the outcome. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you have a body or a, uh, an organism uh, basically so uh, contaminated by parasites, then that entity will die. And the same thing applies for a country and for a society. Mm-hmm. Now, when uh, uh, Reagan uh, said, uh, talked about voodoo economics, we got too many voodoo priests. Yes. And people, they're just, uh, uh, people want to be, uh, so many of the people, the majority of the people, they want to uh, hear sweet music and have lies be told to them. Yes. And, and the problem is true. Uh, that um, economics is being painted as a very complex issue. That's what they always tell the public when they don't want you to understand the con that's going on. There's nothing complicated about money. And it's just simply that the, the, the people who came in to manage the money and have done for an awful long time in their histories uh, know all the cons to make it appear to be complex. There's nothing complex about it. And since when do our governments go into the business of borrowing money to hand out to other countries and putting us down as, as really uh, the guarantors to pay those loans off? I mean, the, the governments are acting like banks on behalf of the big banks. That's happening too. But plus they get their massive cuts into it. And all these handouts to the UN projects, the politicians get the in on uh, where to invest their money. They can't fail because the governments are matching it dollar for dollar and they're raking billions out of it. You're absolutely right. The whole system is completely corrupt. But thanks for calling in, Wilner. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you. Mm-hmm.